millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. You are listening to Missed Apex Podcast. We live F1. Welcome to Missed Apex Podcast. I'm your host, Richard Spanners Ready, and welcome to our summer break news show. Uh, We're going to be chatting about all your latest F1 news that's come in the summer break, some big driver movement. We're recording on Thursday, the 15th of August, and if you're hearing this on Sunday, we apologise for any dramatic driver changes that have come about between now and then. Uh, We're also going to be talking to... Uh, the ex-commercial director of Benetton in the 90s, a fantastic gentleman by the name of Brian Sims. He chatted to us about his new book and how he met Max Mosley and a, a lot of interesting insight into the commercial world of Formula One. I'm your host, Richard Spanners Ready, and I'm joined by Matt Two Rumpets. How's it going, Matt? Oh, it's going great. You know what I'm going to do right after this show? Tell me. I'm going to go get my brand new used car. Did you really get news about your new car into the F1 news show? No, no, that didn't happen at all. But you're American, so it's an 18 liter. No, 3.7. And to be fair, there are pictures of Formula One cars in my owner's manual. So there. Okay, well done. I'll let you off because new car day is fantastically exciting. So we're having a bit of a break from our Sunday streams over the summer. We were going to not stream at all because it's a shorter news show today. Uh, However, uh, we are streaming at the last minute. We decided let's let's stream with our patrons. They're a forgiving bunch. However, that doesn't change the fact that we are an independent podcast produced in the podcasting shed with the kind permission of our better halves. We aim to bring you a race review before your Monday morning commute. We might be wrong, but we're first. We're also joined in the shed by PR man and motorsport journalist Chris Stevens. How's it going, Chris? It's going absolutely wonderfully, Spanners. I'm happy to be back on the show after a brief hiatus. 
You know how I'm the kind of guy who never says I told you so, never drags up things you said. You know, for me, debate is kind of fluid. And if you say something, it's gone. It's in the ether. It's in the past. So I can't even remember that you said it was definitely a mistake for Alexander Alban to give up a Formula E manufacturer drive and take the Toro Rosso. Furthermore, I've entirely forgotten how I told you absolutely that any seat in Formula One puts you in the game and is therefore better than a Formula E seat. I never said definitely. I said, in my opinion, it was too much of a risk to be worth it, in my opinion. Too much of a risk. What was the risk for Alexander Albon taking a Formula One seat, probably his only ever chance at a Formula One seat, uh, what was the risk that he was going to lose a Formula E seat? No, it, it was more that uh, Red Bull were more than likely to be quite content with their driver lineup for quite a long period of time. And I know saying that now seems ridiculous given, you know, in hindsight, we know how much Pierre Gasly has underperformed. But at the time, 12 months ago, he was the hotshot up and comer. And him alongside Max was supposed to be this demon driver pairing that Red Bull could keep as long as the drivers were happy to stay with the team. They could have kept that for five or six years. So having a Toro Rosso seat at the time was a bit like, well, what's the point? What are the chances of being promoted if Red Bull are going to be so content for such a long time. That was the theory at the time anyway. So Chris, you you felt that Red Bull, a team famous for rotating out young drivers and giving young drivers a chance, wouldn't eventually give an opportunity to the Toro Rosso drivers of 2019. Not if they were both performing in the Red Bull, which the thought was that they would. Nobody expected Pierre Gasly to underperform this badly. And and something like this is is somewhat unprecedented. I know it's happened with Kvyat before, but a lot of people said that was very, very harsh. No one could have seen this coming. And for me, the other offer he had on the table as well with Nissan Edams, given that the year before he wasn't even going to have another F2 season, he was saved at the last minute, put up the money for his F2 season in 2018 and ended up having an amazing season he got a Formula E drive, you know, as a result of it, and a three-year contract with a factory, you know, a manufacturer team in a very top-end championship is something that n- very few drivers would turn down. It just so happened that randomly Red Bull turned around and said, "We want you back on the program." Okay, so Edge uh, Hammer has said also a team famous for disintegrating young driver talent. Uh, we'll certainly get onto that, but I just I just want to focus in on. Albon's initial decisions that brought him to this place. So for anyone who's missed it, for anyone whose only source of Formula One news is Missed Apex podcast, I admire that. I think that's a correct approach. So let me remind you that Pierre Gasly has been dropped with immediate effect from the Red Bull seat. He'll be driving in Toro Rosso for the remainder of 2019 alongside Daniel Kvyat. And Alexander Arben, the uh, the Thai slash British driver from Toro Rosso, will now be filling Gasly's seat and driving alongside Max Verstappen. Matt, when it, when it comes to that decision, I know you and Chris... Uh, obviously you do e-radio show, you're big fans of Formula E. I'm, I'm a big fan in principle of Formula E, but until 
until such time as Formula One teams are looking at Formula E for drivers, until such time as somebody breaks the watershed of reaching from Formula One to Formula E for a driver, it is always going to be better for a driver to pick a Formula One drive over any Formula E drive, even a championship winning one. You mean like Red Bull when they asked Albon to drive for Toro Rosso? Uh, he wasn't an, a Formula E driver. He'd, that's a ridiculous argument. He'd not yet stepped into a Formula E car in a race. The the funny thing is, is that he'd done private testing um, for, for Nissan EDAMs. And we arrived at the first day of official preseason testing at Valencia, got about halfway through the day and Albon hadn't sat in the car. Uh, look, look, Chris, I'm going to cut you off there. Right. Had Red Bull Scouts been at the side of the track in the testing, in the stopwatch, and gone, hey, see, see that uh, Albert in that Formula E car, see? Stop everything. We need him in a Red Bull car based on his Formula E testing results. Then, yes, that would be a valid argument. Oh, no, I'm just, it was so hilarious that that was the moment it all suddenly came about. He was being poached by Toro Rosso, and they had to buy him out of the, the Nissan contract. Okay, Matt, super serious time now. Be serious. Formula E isn't a feeder for F1 yet. So he, Albon was completely right to go to say, whatever seat you give me, even if it was a Williams, you're in the game, you're in the big show, you're in the big tent. Uh, Formula E isn't a feeder for F1 full stop. Well, it's it, its own series. It might be one day because it might be. It might be. If Formula One teams start picking Formula E drivers, then young drivers will see that as a legitimate path to Formula One. But it's not happened yet. No, Formula E is its own sport, really. Uh, the feeder series for Formula 1 is Formula 2 and Formula 3 before that. So if you get to that level and you go Formula E, that's like you might as well have gone sports cars. Or you're picking a yeah. different path for you. Exactly. Your so, so tell me the lads coming through and lasses, hopefully, soon because of the fantastic success of the inaugural W series. Uh, those people coming through those feeder series are aiming for Formula 1. They're not going into Formula 3, Formula 2 saying, you know, I, I, I hope I can get Formula E, but I'll settle for Formula 1 if not. So I, I completely back Albon's, Albon's decision. I backed it at the time. And that meant he was in the game to, to get himself a, a shot at this Red Bull seat. Now, Chris says that we were all surprised or that no one saw it coming. Uh, but actually, I mean, Gasly lost out to a Toro Rosso seat, didn't he initially, Chris? So... He, he wasn't a definite for that Toro Rosso seat. He sort of, he got blamed for, for gobbing off in Singapore in like 2015, saying that seat was definitely his. And then it wasn't. And, and then he was only, I say only, he was only up against Hartley, who most people would agree wasn't quite up to snuff in F1. So is it really a massive surprise that Gasly struggled? Well, I think, again, hindsight is a wonderful thing. Um, even though, he he really outperformed Brendan. I still rate Brendan quite highly. Not so much in Formula One where I think he struggled. And also, oh yeah, no, that's yeah. I, I I think he also was treated a little unfairly as well. I think that's fair to say. But um, even so, I mean, the performances he was able to put in, uh, Pierre, that is, um, during his Toro Rosso season. I mean, in his seventh race, he was fourth, and I think that was the. Uh, the, the juxtaposition of it was that it was his relative lack of experience, yet he was still getting these really, really strong results and putting in these great performances that maybe flattered to deceive a little bit. Uh, Matt, the chat room is uh, quite 
involved, and that's our patron chat room. Hi, guys. Hello to Mira, Edgehammer, Ben Williamson, Florine, uh, let's see, Michael Distelhoff and Darren. Thank you for joining us. For normal streams, you can join us by going to YouTube and searching for Missed Apex Podcast, and you can subscribe there and you can chat along live. Uh, the chat room there is kind of still fixated on... Uh, Formula E versus Formula One. I think I think we need to make clear we're not doing down Formula E. I think it's a fantastic series and a fantastic concept. However, you wouldn't uh, at this point, Matt, send your junior Formula One driver to go and race Formula E as preparation for Formula One. Like you said, it's a completely different sport. They'd be better off in Formula Two or IndyCar or uh, Super Formula. Yeah, I mean, I think Super Formula IndyCar maybe would be where you, uh, Super Formula really would be the only other one to go to after you topped out at F2. Um, just because driving the Formula E car, fundamentally, there are some differences about it. But that said, the level of driver in Formula E is, I mean, I don't know how Chris feels about this, but if you look throughout the grid, it's probably got the most competitive overall grid of any series right now, top to bottom. I would also say it's the second highest in terms of skill set across all motorsports, second only to Formula One, obviously. But in in driver skill set or skill set required? Driver skill set. Okay, but not difficulty to drive. Well, Formula E cars are very difficult to drive. Well, well, I'm sure they are, but if we took a circuit like Hungaro Ring, a Formula E car would be beaten by Formula One, Super Formula, IndyCar, Formula 2, Formula 3, and quite possibly GT3 cars. Right, but speed and difficulty to drive, there's no correlation between those two things. Yeah, I mean, Formula E runs an entirely um, runs entirely less downforce than certainly Formula 1 and Formula 2, and they don't have as much power, so that's, yeah. and, and, that's always going to impact your time. And probably less than GT3 as well. Case in point, how much easier are this new generation of Formula One cars than to drive than the pre-2017 ones because they've got too much downforce? I, I don't know. Oh, sorry. Was that a rhetorical question? Okay, let's leave it as a rhetorical question and move our focus to Gasly and what went wrong for him. Missed Apex podcast understands uh, that Pierre Gasly was judged to have been difficult was judged to have not accepted that it was his driving style that was having an impact on the performance of the car and was actually very tone deaf to advice from the senior management. So I think had he been more receptive to the input of the senior management, he would have been given more of a shot. But but that's that's what we're hearing on that there grapevine, Matt. It's a very informative and whispering grapevine that, um, that Gasly just... he You know, he's a young man... He he wasn't doing well, and he was trying to blame other things. Oh, it's the way the car's set up. It's the, the direction of the development. Not all young men will listen to constructive criticism. Well, what really interests me, um, and I think is instructive, would be to look at uh, Leclerc's first adventure in the Sauber, now Alpha, and how after four or five races, he just came alive in that car and started whomping on whoever he was driving against. I believe it was Ericsson at the time. And he basically said, oh, I realized that I couldn't continue to drive this car the same way I drove my F2 car. And once I, once I realized that and started adapting to the 
inherent characteristics of how this car drives, which I believe was a little understeery. He was like, uh, that was where he found all his lap time. And it sounds like what Gasly's really has happened here is he's asked them to make the car in such a way that he can drive it rather than adapting his driving to the way the car already is. Well, if I remember rightly, this is not a new issue for Pierre. And uh, it's the same kind of feedback he got in his junior single-seater career. Um, So in that case, it's a shame he's not really learning his lesson. Uh, He's managed to get through the initial stages of F1 to a top seat without learning that crucial thing. I don't know about you, Spanners, but as a parent, this is kind of reminding me of, well, yes, your kid is not going to learn that lesson as you continue to helicopter in and rescue them until you don't. Uh, I consider myself a very involved parent, but yes, sometimes being a good parent means watching them fall and watching them get up by themselves without without picking them up and going, oh, sweetheart, what is wrong? And they haven't shut the door on Pierre Gasly, at least not publicly. What they said in their initial tweet was, we are very lucky at Red Bull to have four seats and to be able to rotate drivers through. They're not billing this as Alexander Alban now has that Red Bull seat permanently. They're billing it as, well, we gave Pierre a go in the beginning of 2019. It's not worked out. We've got four really talented drivers, so now we're going to try Alex Albon. However, Matt, they are they are being publicly quite critical. Uh, certainly, Marco is, and the reason I believe that at least the senior management believe these things about Gasly being difficult is they they're just not shy in criticizing uh, Pierre Gasly on the way out of the door. I know, Chris, you're saying that they defended him very hard. However, this quote from Marco. Gasly has problems in traffic because he loses places. And this is the hardest thing, right? This is the hardest thing. Gasly has problems in traffic because he loses places and he does not like to overtake. So we had to react and give Albon the chance for the rest of the season. And then we'll see who will drive alongside Max next year. But Chris, focus in on that on that one line. He does not like to overtake. That is a gut punch. The public comments from the team regarding Pierre has flopped massively compared to, say, two or three months ago when it was, oh, the car's not quite right for him. And, oh, he'll get there eventually to, no, he is 100% the issue. He doesn't learn and he is too afraid in traffic. Again, a little reminiscent of his junior single-seater career. I remember him throwing away a victory in Baku with like a, a lap or two to go to his teammate of all people, Antonio Giovinazzi. Okay, so let's move away from Gasly. Well, I mean, we don't have to move away from Gasly, Matt, but my thinking is this is a one-way street. You know, yes, they brought Gviat back from out of F1 back into Toro Rosso. That feels like it was a, a desperation move, in all honesty. And the fact that they didn't put him in Gasly's place now kind of speaks to the fact that they really don't rate him. He's not going back to a Red Bull seat. And we haven't seen that move come back the other way. We've not seen a Red Bull driver leave and then come back. I have a different theory, which is with this half of the season wasted, Yeah, that it made more sense to put Albon in the car and see what he's capable of. But I take them at their word when they say this is just uh, a trial run for him. Yeah. 
yeah. both as a way to take pressure off of him being in the car, like press pressure, but also to give them total freedom because um, the person they brought in to replace Tictum had an award I don't believe will have enough super license points to move up to Toro Rosso at the start of next season. He's still working on that. And so they're going to have to take either Gasly, Albon, or Kvyat and put one of them into that seat. And my thought is, is that if Albon does know better than Gasly, then next season we'll see Kvyat in for a period of time till they decide either Albon or Gasly is really ready to move up. That's another reason that I said what I said last year was that already those two Toro Rosso drivers were not Red Bull's first, second, third, or fifth choice, really. And uh, and we I said this at the karting event last year that Red Bull suddenly have a huge hole in their driver program, and now we are fully seeing it unraveling with yeah. a bit of chaos, really. And uh, there's still no one else to bring up through the ranks. What I love about Formula One more than anything is that, yes, you might see results over a race, but the true picture of Formula One unfolds over many races, over seasons, over decades, over eras. And what Red Bull are doing with their their swapping, uh, their crazy swapping at the moment, and what they're doing with their their willingness to drag drivers up, bring them through and give them a chance in their Red Bull seat is we're seeing that driver shuffle and that driver to driver comparison played out a little quicker than we might normally see. So the scenario we've got for the rest of the season, if we grant Gasly a little bit of time to get used to that Toro Rosso, because as we know, it can be harder to go from a car with really high downforce, a high performing car into a less well performing car. So we'll give Gasly a little bit of grace. But we are going to have some questions answered. So let's look at what I feel is the most likely scenario, Chris, is that Albon is going to come into Red Bull. He's going to be at least able to stay within Hamilton's pit window, which I imagine will be his absolute number one priority, given that had Gasly been up in Hamilton's pit window, uh, Verstappen would have won the Hungarian Grand Prix, most likely. I think Albon will be up there, not on Verstappen's level, but right up there. And for me, the most likely scenario is that Gasly will now go to Toro Rosso and get soundly, soundly beaten by Kvyat, even if we give him a little bit of grace and a little bit of time to settle in. Now, you have to agree, Chris, that that will answer quite a lot of questions over the last few years. Like You can track that all the way back to Hartley, to Kvyat, to, to 2016, 2017. Definitely, yeah, and I can I can see Albon doing a better job, which isn't going to be difficult because all he really has to do is not get lapped by Max Verstappen and yep. not be competing with McLarens and Alfa Romeos rather than the Ferraris. Yes, a dream. Uh, well, or Toro Rosso's, in fact. Yeah, oh, yeah, exactly. Um, the thing I'm worried about for Pierre now is remember what happened to to Danny Kvyat when he got demoted. It absolutely destroyed him and the mental effect of it as well uh, and it, it was devastating to watch and i really fear for the same thing happening for pierre now and that will contribute to his new teammate battle with with 
with Danny Kvyat. So I'm I'm really reluctant to speak to the mental strength because that's such a vague term of a driver when we're not in their dressing room and we're not speaking to them. However, that is a concern. And another thing that Mr. Apex picked up on is that apparently after testing, do you remember he had the double crash in testing? That seemed to be a big switching point for him. And that really, really unsettled him. And he never quite recovered, uh, you know, from that. So if he does have that kind of sports psychology fragility, perhaps, you know, like in a Roman Grosjean kind of way, I think you might be right, Chris. Toro Rosso could be a struggle. Question from the chat room is that uh, should should Daniel Ricciardo make a return? And uh, I absolutely know he's got to be in Renault for the long run, surely. Uh, Matt, do you think there's any chance of uh, Daniel Ricciardo entering the Red Bull program? Not unless Verstappen leaves to go someplace yeah. else. So we can we can spend a bit of time on the Daniel Ricciardo situation. Obviously, it's not worked out. And you could say, as I'm sure Chris would argue, oh, it's, uh, it's always easy to say that in hindsight. Uh, if you think that's a harsh impression, Chris, just listen back to the tape. That's how you sound. Uh, I think the clues were there. If you look back uh, to, I think, the beginning of 2018, I had a bet with sometime panellist on here, Anil Palmer, and I bet him that not only would Renault not have a resurgence and not uh, rise up to dominate Formula One, but in fact, they would be beaten by Force India. Now, I can't actually remember which way it went. If you add up Force India and Racing Points points last year, did Renault just beat them still? They they didn't just beat them. They, beat them by a lot, did they? Because I know, I know, obviously, Racing Point had a few results towards the end of the season. However, that wasn't because Renault were on the rise. That's because Force India had an absolutely disastrous season. However, I, th- there is no indication whatsoever that Renault is on its way to the top. They have done nothing to demonstrate. Oh, go on then, Chris. Tell me, what have you seen in the Renault Formula One outfit that suggests to you they're about to break the top three? No, I was about to add on to the fact that even though last year they really hit that peak and it looked like the trajectory was in the right direction, that what's happened this year, they've gone massively backwards. Yeah. They've invested so much money into this as well. There was the extra investment for this year and it has gotten them nowhere. And that is troubling. So I was a little disturbed by reading that Daniel Ricciardo was not blaming, but kind of pointing to the fact that, oh, his race engineer returning to a more factory role was one of his reasons why he didn't want to stay at Red Bull. I would be incredibly surprised if that was a real factor between choosing the 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 team that generally starts third and then overtakes third into second over the last few seasons and a team that has shown no sign of breaking into that top four so to me it looks like Daniel Ricciardo Matt has seen seen that that decision isn't working out and he's now kind of retrospectively trying to justify things I think we need to be entirely honest he felt like he was in Max Verstappen's house and he needed to leave Max Verstappen's house and the home he found himself in isn't as good as he might have hoped Uh, yeah i'd say it hasn't worked out as well as he was thinking it might but they have spent the money they're going to spend the money and i would say all along their plan was for the next set of regulations oh come on matt matt no matt matt you've been saying i I think i think much like (laughs) hamilton in 2012 mercedes plans he went to the team when it was fourth in the championship they said, we're raising our investment. 
But what we're really targeting are the new sets of regulations where with the cost cap and what they believed was coming in, they felt they could be quite competitive. Look, Matt, I, I, my memory isn't that, that civ-like. It is quite civ-like, but not that civ-like. You've been saying that about Renault since they came in, and you also were equally optimistic about Honda and their, their rise through the ranks and McLaren-Honda. Isn't it more fair to look for the start of a trend than keep supposing that next year is going to be the next big year? The thing is, Matt is, is, is right, though. I mean, if there's one thing we've learned on this show, this particular show, is that you've got to cover all future bases. <laughs> well, okay. But, I mean, everyone's looking at that Mercedes punt from Hamilton as if that is a marker for future decisions. It's not. Honda and oh. Braun as well. There's, there's Honda and Braun as well from 2009. And, actually, you, you, you said Honda. They're now race winners. So, what? Wow, that's weak. Okay, come on. It took, that's five years ago. Matt was saying McLaren Honda for three years were about to be the team that was going to launch. Let's be, let's be, let's not whitewash the, the past. Okay, but no one could, could have predicted, well, not predicted, but nobody knew just how awful McLaren was as a race team back then. Still are. So let's talk about Honda. When did they come back to the sport? 2015. 2015? Yeah. What year is it? Four years later. So we're in the uh, fifth season. When did Ricardo go to Renault this year? So, I mean, like these numbers are, are kind of making sense. If they're going to drop the dollars and make the research happen, uh, I don't know. I mean, I see it okay. as being a possibility that they could. But honestly, I say that from a strategic point of view, from an I'm actually watching the sport point of view. I don't think Renault have got on top of their issues and it's a problem. So let's separate those two a little bit. Renault, uh, relative to the financial input, a poor Formula One outfit. They are punching well below their weight and they've shown no evidence that that is going to change. For me, Daniel Ricciardo has made a bad, a bad bet. If he genuinely thought that Renault were going to get anywhere near Red Bull in the next three seasons, I think he's smoking something. Fair enough. Um, but I would like to bring up McLaren and Repose which is if you were to join McLaren last year, what would you think you would be doing this year in terms of the championship versus where they actually are? I mean, if you're going to turn around a team, it takes time. For me, the problem, and it's been mentioned in the chat room, and I'm going to go along with them, I think the problem is at the top of Renault. I think they have the talent. I think they have the engineers. They have the money. But I think, I think the people running it, uh, and, and now we've got uh, Prost, in charge of the whole program, maybe we'll see some uh, structural changes at Renault that will allow them to be more competitive. All right. Well, I'll just counter your your McLaren point. So if you were Daniel Ricciardo, and apparently McLaren was his other option, but if you were Daniel Ricciardo, Ricciardo, if you were Daniel Ricciardo, and you were trying to leave Red Bull and improve, and you went to McLaren thinking that you were going to overtake Red Bull... I would still say that was a bad bet. I'd be having a similar conversation now, except for the fact that Renault would be a slightly better bet, or you might expect it to be because it's a works team. The fact of the matter is that outfit isn't performing. And I I will be shocked if in the next three or four years, it becomes a top three team. I agree with you to a point. However, uh, Renault, certainly the engine manufacturer, has a history of showing up behind 
and catching up over time. So that's the only argument I can think of in their favor, which is we have seen such rapid changes in the regulations that the way they normally do things, which is, oh, yeah, we, we showed up. We've got most of a car here. Let's see what it does. And then a few years later, they've caught up is not working because things are changing too quickly for their uh, structure to deal with. Well, I cannot wait until we get to 2022. Renault have failed to perform and you claim that you said that they would never catch up all along or that, in fact, they needed 15 years and not six. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science, with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. You're listening to Missed Apex Podcast, an independent podcast produced in this podcasting shed. And I was joined a few days ago by the ex-commercial director of Benetton, a fascinating man by the name of Brian Sims, not a household name, but had a massive influence, was in fact responsible for making motorsport a proper industry and helping them make links with business and properly fund and commercialize Formula One. We're going to play that interview right after this on this episode, uh, but we're going to talk a little bit of Formula One news first. Matt, your favorite topic is tyres. Now, people think that I find tyres boring. I think it's worth reiterating that I don't find tyres boring. I find you talking about tyres boring. That's okay. ASMR, baby. 
Yeah, so if you want to go to sleep, maybe we should do special Matt Trumpets talks about tire strategy episodes to you know to help you doze off at night. Uh, tell me what's going on with uh, 2020 and 2021 with the Pirelli tires. They are a vital part of the sport, and I have a theory on why tire saving has become more prevalent in the last few years. Uh, well, because more power, more downforce. Um... But here's the thing. Um, they have to finalize the tires uh, for next year and uh, for 2021. So Pirelli has sent out a letter to all of the teams with the specific targets, which are usually um, differences in deltas between compounds. However, what's different about this is we've, we have heard from various teams that they want to switch to low degradation tires, which if you just think Bridgestone, if you're old enough, this will all make sense to you um, from the current kind of tires that they're running. But what's also interesting about it is part of the problem is the 18 inch tires, which Formula One is moving to in 21. And I believe Formula Two is running next season um, also have to be also have to be finalized along with the um, regulations for 2021. So that's likely going to be finished being negotiated by October. Okay. So I wasn't listening to any of that because I I tried to, but I zoned out. Let me make my incredible point, Chris. Or do you, do you want to get a point yeah. in first? I want to say going to low deck tires is incredibly risky given that uh, – a lot of racing seems to be very dependent on strategy. And they'll they'll say, like they said last year, they'll say we're, we're going for able to push more. They don't overheat as much and they can follow better. I will believe it when I see it because they've been saying it for two or three years now. Okay, let's be clear, Matt. What are we talking about when we say degradation? Because it feels to me like there's different kinds of badness in tyres. So there's the badness where it overheats and loses performance. There's the badness where it overheats, loses performance, and then it doesn't come back. And then there's the badness where the rubber itself runs out. So you run out of useful, usable grip. So to me, that's the difference between degradation, permanent degradation, and wear. Right. So when they mean degradation, they're really talking about primarily that third one. Where? Yeah, the tires and when they wear out and how. But they're also talking about uh, the other two to an extent making the operating window of the tire bigger and making it less of a problem should you overheat your tires because right now if you overheat Mm. them they're they're done you won't recover that performance yeah um so so essentially they're they're talking about making the tires easier for the drivers to manage so yes we're talking about making something easier in formula one okay so i like that i I like the once you heat them up they work better and then it's nearly impossible to overheat them. I think that would be really good. Like have an infinite tire window. So it starts off cold and we, and that's perfectly acceptable for cold tires to take time to warm up. Even rental carts drivers know that it's going to take a few laps and then suddenly that grip comes in. Yeah, it does. But as uh, Chris pointed out and as Mario Isola pointed out in his remarks uh, about this, one of the issues is if you have tires like that, everyone will just pick the fastest tire and there'll be no deviation in strategy whatsoever. So an important aspect of this is explicitly stating what each tire should be due, the target. If it's the low degrading softest tire, 
it will only be good for 12 laps before you can't trust it. If it's the medium tire, it's going to, and they will have this for each of the tires in their projected range for the next two seasons. Right now, while we're talking about temperatures, it's really worth remembering that in that season, they're not going to have tire blankets anymore. So they can't come out the garage with the the fronts already at 100 degrees and the rears at 80. They're going to have to generate that tire temperature themselves from stone cold. Yeah, good. And that's fine. I think just as long as you can't ruin your tires by pushing too hard and by racing on your tires, which is what we're doing, we're racing, race, the act of racing on your tires shouldn't then make, make the, the tires unusable. However, we then go into what I called wear. So the third time, I do like the fact that they wear. So when they talk about a cliff, the cliff isn't a bad thing. The cliff should kind of be a feature. So if it's possible to make a tire that you can drive on doesn't overheat, that you need to heat up, but then you can just rag. However, it has a a finite amount of laps. And the more laps you have on a certain type of compound, the the slower that tire is. So that would give us our basic tire strategy, wouldn't it, Matt? Yeah. I mean, essentially what you're talking about is you want a linear, after a certain number of yeah. laps, you're talking about a linear loss of performance, lap over lap, yeah. as long as tires uh, are capped and, and then within a cliff. Yeah. parameters. Yeah. And then I'm happy with a cliff. But I think the the tire saving has been worse over the last few years as Pirelli have made harder compounds. So they've made, they've responded to all the criticism of chocolate tires. So where we had tires that would fall off a cliff and then you'd have to have two, three, even four stop races, and and that made for an interesting strategy, people criticized that, said it was chocolate tires, and then they've made the tires harder. Once you get into the window of a one-stop strategy being preferable over a two-stop strategy, then suddenly the incentive on the teams is not to switch to a softer, faster tire. The incentive is stay on the that stay on that tire and protect that tire for as long as possible so we can do one stop. And because we've gone hard enough to go into that one-stop window most of the time, that's why the teams have kind of agreed on this general one-stop strategy. Whereas if if like we had in Hungary, if we had more windows where it was better for a team to come in, put the soft boots on and and try and go for it, which used to work up until the 2017 regulations, then we'd have the tyre strategy that they were aiming for. But we keep responding to knee-jerk criticisms. Chocolate tyres was, ne- was the wrong criticism. If you yelled at the TV about chocolate tyres, you're wrong. And you added to something that made the sport worse. Those those 2011 and 2012 seasons were just terrible, weren't they? Oh, yes. seven seven winners in the first seven yeah. races. Oh, I couldn't stand that. Yeah. So, but obviously, like if if you if by racing on a tire it makes it disintegrate, then yeah, obviously you know that is bad. Uh, but we're not opposed to tires wearing out. Yeah, I think tyres should wear out. And, and surely Pirelli know this. And we're not telling them anything they don't know, but they have to worry about their optics. So if a tyre runs out after 20 laps, it might make for better racing. However, because, you know, it makes for better racing because you can't protect a, a tyre that's only going to last 20 laps. You can't protect that and stretch it to a one-stop strategy. So then two stops, three stops all become viable targets. But if it wears out after 15 laps, the optics from a business point of view, Matt, 
are, are, are worse for Pirelli. And then they've got this business incentive to make indestructible tyres or harder tyres, which actually hurt the racing. Yeah, well, you're right. And they even mentioned that when they discussed the move to go back to last year's tyres with this year's cars that some of the teams had had been pushing for. They said, look, we can do that, but we've not tested those tyres with these cars and you will have more blistering. And not only will that be more dangerous, it also it doesn't look good for Pirelli when there's lots of blistering. This is one of the big things they were out to stop. But what I want to say is, to a certain extent, this is a larger issue that Formula One needs to answer. The only reason we had chocolate tires in the first place is because Bernie saw a race that was exciting because nobody knew what the tires were going to do. And he said, oh, I want that. Make it so. And so they did without thinking about any of the second or third order consequences to the sport. Well, now I have to drive around slower to preserve these tires that you wanted. I mean, essentially, the tires we have now are the equivalent of Bernie sprinklers, if you ask me, because zero thought went into an overall look at the sport. They're not saying, where do we want these cars to be competing? Is it fuel efficiency? Is it power generation? They're just like, oh, someone complained about a thing. Yeah, and, yeah. oh, I saw that. That Look at that bright, shiny thing. Let's make the whole sport that now. And this, uh, for me personally, is worrisome and bothersome because you should really sit down and decide what your sport is about before you start specking mm-hmm. these kinds of changes. Yeah. So I think, ironically, by making the the tires last less time and, uh, and making them uh, wear out quicker, wear out quicker, not de- not have thermal degradation. If they wear out quicker, you actually make it less. You make tires less of an issue because there won't be an incentive to to conserve them or save them for the one stop. It will be beneficial to come in, get fresh boots on, and go charging, like we saw Hamilton did in Hungary. Uh, we're going to go to that Brian Sims interview very soon, uh, but I just I just want to dwell a little bit on the silly season. So we've already lost Pierre Gasly and uh, Alex Albon has moved up to replace him. The next big driver shift is going to be Bottas and uh, whether he can retain his seat. So in the shed here, in in Missed Apex podcast, we've had two conflicting views. We've had ex-Lotus CEO uh, Matthew Carter on this program saying that he heard from sources it was pretty much deal done. And he was he was super sure. And he said, no, Ocon is going to be in that Mercedes seat. Joe Saywood, F1 uh, paddock guru. And these are both people we fantastically trust, Matt. And these are both people who would not come on and say things just for the sake of sensationalism. They're just giving us uh, the truth as best they know it. Joe said, no, that's rubbish. Nothing's been decided yet. It looks really negative for Bottas from what's come out of Mercedes. So assuming it hasn't been announced uh, before this goes out on Sunday, which way do you think it's going to go? Um, I, I'm in the Carter camp because I was on that show. So it's easy <laughs> for me. But I, I think back to what Wolf had to say initially uh, when Ocon lost the seat at Renault. He, he feels that he owes him this. And frankly, uh, performance-wise... Uh, Botas has been losing points this year, especially that they could, that, that they can afford because Hamilton's been so good, but that projecting forward to next year when Ferrari will presumably have sorted its issues. If you look at last year and make last year's Ferrari, next year's Ferrari, 
I don't think they can afford for Botas to have as weak of a season overall. So I am in the Joe camp here, and <laughs> I think that Botas will be retained because what are they expecting different with, with Ocon in the car? I think Ocon will be in F1 next season, but with a different team. And I have to ask Matt, what points is, I mean, I know he's not had a perfect season, but you're making it sound like he's hemorrhaging points. Uh, how many times has a car finished in between them in a car that is supremely dominant? Well, it is not supremely dominant anymore, is it? The the I think we are we are we kind of agreed now that the Max Verstappen in the Red Bull is a uh, a regular competitor to Mercedes uh, on certain tracks. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, the sentiment, Chris. I get your sentiment. Yes, it is track dependent. Uh, however, had had Monza and Spa been at the beginning of the season, I'd have expected Ferrari to dominate them. However, I'm not going to be stunned. I'm not going to be stunned if Verstappen beats both Ferraris at Spa. However, if if Hamilton can beat Verstappen, then Bottas should be able to as well. It's not unfair to say the gap in race pace is huge. And that's, that's not even that much against Bottas. I believe right now that Hamilton's race pace is 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 mucky. Like it's a dirty amount of race pace talent he has. It's a disgusting amount of race pace versus flat out pace that he has and and Bottas has been maybe unfairly shown up by it I think I, I think look at the last two races I mean what Germany is was a write off for both of them so it's a bit unfair mm-hmm. to yeah sure but Hungary was he was just bullied on the first <laughs> lap really wasn't he especially yes. by Charlie Leclerc he was and by the way I, I argued with jake didn't i on the hungarian race review because jake thought that was not so bad i think actually the the overheads show that to be quite a disgusting move by the clerk it was but i wouldn't in fact i'll stick by my original sentiment it was proper rude it, it was and the, the quote from the stewards afterwards was that the the, the onboard cameras made it look worse yeah. than it was well. but i gotta say from what we as viewers were seeing, it looked pretty nasty. <laughs> it did. Uh, and, and sort of almost unnecessary as well. But yeah. anyway, that's by the by. I, I, I am on Matt's side of this argument. And you know that I don't take, you know I don't take Matt's side unless I really have to. But they are definitely leaving points on the table, Matt. I think you're right. If they have a proper championship challenge, Bottas could end up being not a Gasly level liability, but you could see him bleeding points where you would want him right on Hamilton's tail. Actually, he's letting cars in between the two. Chris, go on then. Oh, and Ocon's going to be right on Lewis Hamilton's tail, is he? <laughs> Matt, you're a big Ocon fan. I don't know. Uh, he did pretty well against Perez, except for those times Perez drove into him. And I do believe he managed to qualify, albeit in the wet, that force India not quite yet racing point, or was it racing point then? I don't remember. Didn't he finish third in a qualifying at Spa? I mean, that's kind of impressive. And he's also beaten Verstappen in a championship. So he has the pedigree. He does. Okay, yeah, he beat Sergio Perez in the, the racing point force India. Sergio Perez, the Lewis Hamilton beater, obviously, wasn't he? Yeah. As a rookie. He I'm, took an established veteran to the mat and showed him no mercy, beat him in qualifying soundly. Yeah. <laughs> and was able to score score more points. I don't know. I'd have to go back and look now. Uh, I, I, I've lost that plot because it's been too long ago. Don't get me wrong. I am a huge Ocon fan. 
I think it is a travesty he's not in Formula One this year. And I will root for him 100%. I love the guy. But I honestly do not think he will do much of a better job than Valtteri Bottas currently is doing at Mercedes. And he's certainly not going to be on Lewis Hamilton's tail. I, I think I'm between you two. I think he will do a better job than Bottas, but not be challenging Lewis Hamilton properly. Not to not to the Rosberg level. No, I don't think he could until he has more experience, if I'm being honest. But he doesn't have to do that much better than Bottas. The margins at that end of the field aren't that great. A 10% improvement is a one or two place improvement over the course of the race. And suddenly, instead of finishing first and fifth, you're first and third or first and second. And that's what Mercedes wants. We've already gone longer than I wanted to. So what we're going to do is we're going to cut now to our special interview with our guest, Brian Sims. I'm joined by Brian Sims, one of international sports most experienced and successful sponsorship acquisition exponents, never without a major sponsorship throughout his own professional racing career. Brian then proved his abilities within the world of F1, bringing global corporations such as FedEx, Gillette and Marconi into F1 for the first time. Hello there, Brian Sims. How are you? Yeah, good day to you. Very nice to be here. Welcome to the shed. Uh, shuffle in, find a spot where you can. Uh, before we talk about your time as the commercial director of Benetton, which I'm so excited to talk about, uh, I read that you were actually key in making motorsport an actual recognised industry. Well, way back in uh, 1994, uh, a statement from Max and Bernie in Autosport that Formula 3000, which you may remember, was the cutting-edge formula to go into Formula One at that time. And they wanted to make it a control formula. And I was sitting with Eric Broadley, who was the, the famous chairman of Lola Race Cars. And he said to me, goodness gracious, he said, that's our business down the tubes. Announcing it at this time is a, a, a crazy thing. And I set up a meeting with Adrian Reynard. Uh, and we went to visit Max Mosley, who was then, of course, president of the FIA. And um, he said to us, look, guys, it's no good you're complaining. Get out there. Get all your people in your industry, all your suppliers, tire company, break people together and come back with a solution and how we can cut costs in Formula 3000. Because if you don't, we're going to make it a one-make series. Trying to get everybody together was all nigh impossible. That's when I came up with the idea that this sector, it wasn't recognized as an industry then, needs to have a forum of its own to protect and promote the interests of its members. That's how I got the idea of starting the MIA. Right. So we started the MIA and then that meant that I guess it could be commercialized easier. Everyone knew who they were dealing with and you had a kind of a united front to face the business world with. I don't really know what I'm saying, Brian. Am I am I close? <laughs> Yeah, you're very close. Yeah, it's nowhere near as complicated. It wouldn't, you know, if it was complicated, I wouldn't have done it. What happened, in fact, was that we, uh, in the process of uh, getting a sponsor on board, because I thought we need to have a big business sponsoring us. And in fact, I got two. One of them was Anderson Consulting, as it was then. They went on to become Accenture. And the other one was Hewlett Packard. And they added that fantastic credibility that this was a business organization, not a racing organization. And so we got them on board. Um, and 
from there, it was quite an easy step to start getting the government to realize that they got something very, very special in their bonnet. So whenever anyone complains about the over-commercialization of motorsport, I mean, you're completely to blame, Brian. Oh, totally. Yeah, <laughs> please, please do that. I get blamed for most things, so let's have another one on, the, on there. What was interesting, though, I, I was sitting in a traffic jam on the M25 about a year after this had started, and I got a phone call from a guy called Ian Lang, and he said, Brian, I'm the president of the Board of Trade. Well, as you can probably imagine, I thought it was one of my mates taking the... Oh, the absolutely, mission. yeah. And, and he said, we want to invite you to lunch at Lancaster House next to Buckingham Palace and bring 11 other guys from your industry because that year was the centenary of the automobile, 1996, in Britain, and they had a lot of big events. And he said, we can't find many good events or good stories about the British motor industry in those days. But we keep coming across this amazing success of the <laughs> motorsport industry and your new association. The theme of the lunch, what can you do as an industry sector, a world-leading industry sector, to help other sectors in British industry? And out of that came, yes, we can help by using the attraction of motorsport to young people to set up education and training programs to attract them into engineering and technical skills training. And within a year, the first ever motorsport engineering degree course was set up at Swansea University. Today, there are 17 universities running motorsport engineering. It, it's strange, isn't it? You kind of want to think that those things came about through like a, a much more deliberate path rather than an, an almost serendipitous path, as you're describing. But even your initial contact with Max Mosley was serendipitous. Would you mind telling me how you met Max? Yeah, I was traveling down to South Africa from, from London to visit my parents who lived there and to go and watch the South African Grand Prix in 1975. And I was reading Autosport. And the guy next to me on the plane, when you're on a long journey, as it happens, you get chatting. And he said, uh, you're interested in motor racing? And I said, yes. He said, do you do any? And I said, well, I've just started racing Formula Fords. He said, oh, it's interesting. He said, um, where are you going? I said to South Africa for the Grand Prix. He said, well, when you get there, come and see me. Gave me his card. His name was Max Mosley. And he was then, of course, one of he was the M in March, Formula One, went on to become the president of the FIA. And four years later, helped me get the job as manager of the Grand Prix circuit in South Africa. It's an amazing history into motorsport for you, Brian. And, and you've just touched on there that it's in your blood. You're a racer as well. Uh, Formula Ford, you say you, you kind of drove, which is single-seater cars, very little downforce, incredibly lively rear ends. How did your, how did your own motorsport career go? <laughs> Disastrous. <laughs> I started by going to the Brands Hatch Racing Driver School. I won a day at the school. And managed to spin the car and got told to uh, go away in very polite terms because I'll never make a racing driver. And they were probably right. But I went on to, um, I was lucky, I got into a formula which in those days, uh, in my era, produced more than 15 drivers into Formula One. It, it was an extraordinary formula. 120 cars entered at Silverstone for one championship round. And... Um, I, I sort of held my own in it. I got through to finals and so forth. Um, but there was this guy in front of me all the time called Nigel Mansell, uh, Derek Warwick, Derek Daly, all this crowd. 
but it was it was fun and i i eventually switched to touring cars and um ended up racing for mercedes in touring cars and group c racing in south africa so uh it, it, it didn't do too bad, but it was more because of the sponsorship I got than because of my talent behind the wheel. Oh, interesting. So you're kind of holding your hand up as a uh, a pay driver, a sponsored driver, someone who is able to attract finances to get them into a racing series. And, and that is a vital part of being a modern driver in kind of any scenario, really. Well, you know, when I look at uh, Formula One today and I see all the drivers with very rich fathers, I say to youngsters, don't worry you can compete against the Lance Strolls of this world yes you can't compete against his father's money but if you learn how to get sponsorship as I did then you can go out there and play on a level playing field and I wish there was a lot more help for young drivers to do that okay I can't I can't zip past too quickly the fact that you were on a grid with Nigel Mansell and and Derek Warwick was this Formula Ford as well was it yes and and did you ever get wheel to wheel with El Lionel uh, yes, I suppose I did when he was lapping me. <laughs> <laughs> Just watching him go fast. <laughs> no, I actually sat behind him on the grid at uh, Alton Park in my first professional race. Um, but he, he was something special. Uh, yeah, I've got a lot of time from Nigel. He, he gets criticised a great deal, but I think he is one of the most underrated drivers. He was brilliant in Formula Ford. He was one of the best overtakers in Formula One. And uh, as um, I think we, we chatted about earlier, uh, I had a, a dinner with him in, before his first Grand Prix. So uh, jealous. You ended up having dinner with Nigel Mansell. And Razan. And it was a sign of his determination. He Out in South Africa, he was with John Player, uh, not John Player Special, with Lotus. Colin Chapman was sitting at the next table. And Nigel said, Brian, you're manager of the circuit down here now. You know the conditions, all the aspects of the track. I want to learn from you before the race. None of the other drivers did that. But he was the most determined person I have ever met in motor racing. And he deserved every credit, every bit of success he got. I agree. Massively underrated. Red, the real Red Five. N- not like this new pretender carrying the Red Five, Brian. I'll make you a little more jealous. Go on. He invited Liz and I to his golf club, Woodbury Park, for our wedding anniversary. And we had a, a lovely weekend down there um, on the house, as it were, from Nigel, which was really appreciated. Right, I now need to befriend Nigel Mansell. Let's get him on. Let's see if we can get him on and in the shed at Missed Apex Podcast. Really fascinating insight into you just then when you were talking about uh, where Nigel Mansell was racing. You instantly, instinctively said John Player Special. So you were looking at the sponsor rather than the team. So that's that's very much where you've interfaced uh, with Formula One, bringing sponsorships to teams. Can you tell me how you got involved with Benetton? I got involved with Benetton through a chance phone call from a Formula Ford racer who I used to compete against called Matthew Argenti. And Matthew was a very, very good young driver and went on to become the CEO of a, 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 an international sports marketing agency owned by Alan Pascoe, the British athlete. And they got the Benetton Formula One account. In other words, they had to go and find sponsorship on behalf of Benetton. And he rang me and said, Brian, uh, we put down a half million pound guarantee of getting sponsorship. We need somebody who can come in and pull some deals quickly. And I became their head of motorsport. And that's how I first met with Benetton. Um, and within three months, had put together a, a, a very major deal with Gillette, which, of course, made um, everybody very happy. 
Well, I'll bet. Uh, but at that point, you were you were working for a subcontractor of Benetton, but you did end up coming circling all the way round and working for Benetton themselves. Yeah, um, I, I'd gone. I was sent over to America as head of motorsport for this big agency, uh, and I hated working for them. I didn't enjoy the experience, and it obviously got back. And I got a phone call from Rocco Benetton, who had taken over the reins as CEO of the Benetton Formula One team. Um, he's the heir to the Benetton fortune. Um, and he said to me, Brian, we haven't done any deals since you left. Come and talk. And I came back to England and ended up as commercial director. So you were in the, in the heart of the beast, as it were. What, what era was that? I joined them, uh, effectively it was about 98. So they had three years to go. So, uh, 98, uh, racing under an Italian race license at that time. So, but this was, kind of on the come down from the Michael Schumacher, Johnny Herbert era. And I guess they'd lost a lot of their guys to Ferrari at that time. What was morale like at Benetton? It was sad. We had two very good young drivers, Giancarlo Fisichella and Alex Wurtz. Um The car was going backwards instead of forwards. It really was very, very uh, poor, very difficult for everybody. Um, we'd had um, David R- Flavio had uh, left the company. Uh, David Richards had come in spent a year and left the company and then Rocco took over and I got on really well with him and, and managed to bring in a very very big major deal with uh, Marconi um, which but of course the writing was on the wall and then one day Pat Simmons called everybody all of us into the restaurant at Benetton uh, in 2000 I think it was and said that Benetton was pulling out lock stock and barrel we'd be working with Renault in future it'd be Renault and Flavio was coming back as CEO. And there was quite a big groan went through the whole place. Really? Well, I mean, I'm not entirely surprised, uh, but they were they were despondent, were they, at, at Briatore returning? Well, a lot of the people were because they knew how, ben, how he worked. Anything that Rocco had set up was going to be dismantled. And the first thing he did, the most successful department at uh, Benetton when I was there was the marketing department. We were doing the deals that the team was not performing, the car wasn't performing. So when Flavio arrived, the first thing he did was to dismantle all the team. And um, myself, the head of marketing services, everybody who'd succeeded because he likes to do his own deals. And uh, that's how it's always been. Uh, Brian, do you look at the, the modern landscape of commercial deals and look at the likes of uh, uh, McLaren that have had a lot of blank real estate and, uh, and then you see like Williams clumsily almost begging for the rich energy deal that Haas ended up getting. Do you think it's a harder environment for the new Brian Sims or the, the modern Brian Simses to try and get sponsorship deals for F1 cars? No, I it's really don't. I, I get, um, I, I've been very lucky. I was invited to be a guest lecturer for the World Academy of Sport. And I've been across to places like uh, Dubai for the International Cricket Council, Dublin with World Rugby, Bahrain Olympic Committee, all of these sort of places. And I've seen how other sports have grown and learned about sponsorship. To me, Formula One, I'm afraid, and motor racing in general, in many ways, is still living in the dark ages. They haven't recognized the world's changed. They haven't recognized things like corporate social responsibility have become a big element. I've offered help to some of the Formula One teams. Oh, have you? important for that so they don't want this old uh, old i won't use the word but you know what i was going to say <laughs> they don't want one of these old characters coming in telling them uh, how they should be doing it 
Well, I, I, mean, I don't think they're doing a particularly good job. I mean, would you really want to give up the, you know, the after dinner circuit now uh, in exchange for the cut and thrust of Formula One's commercial world? Well, I'm doing big sponsorship deals as it is now outside. I, I do a little bit of speaking, but I'm in the middle of a very big sponsorship deal right now. It's still in sports? In motorsport. Wow. Oh, wow. And uh, it can be done. I'm it, trying, it, I'm obviously, it, I'm trying to tease out of you, like trying to get a hint in your eyes. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not going to give all my secrets away, but seriously, um, I, I, I can thank one company for all the skills that I've learned about sponsorship, and that is a company called Xerox. Because in my early days, I was a Xerox salesman, and they taught me more about selling than anywhere else I've ever been. And um, I've I learned those skills and applied them to sport, and it's worked. And I've done in my career over a hundred major sponsorship deals, over a hundred million pounds worth of sponsorship. But unfortunately, you you can't tell some of the people today they know it all, and um, I think they're getting it wrong. Now you said That's you're not man talking. <laughs> oh no, you 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 uh, you uh, you yell at the clouds all you want. We we love a bit of experience on Miss Apex podcast. Um, you said you're not going to give away your secrets, although you are giving away some secrets because you have written a book called You Don't Have to Be a Champion to Be a Winner. Tell us a little bit about that. Is there is there any kind of F1 stuff in there too? A lot of F1 stuff in there. It starts off really, the book goes from my early days as, uh, I mean, my first job was putting wheels onto wheelbarrows at a builder's <laughs> merchant. And I sort of worked up from there and became a salesman and then became the sales training director for ITT, the big American corporation, and taught selling. And then I managed to do a deal before I'd ever sat in a racing car to be fully sponsored for my first race. And it went on from there, and I realized that what I was doing was working, and I've applied that. And it's not rocket science. I I sit with uh, all sorts of audiences, university students, all all types of people, and I say, you know, what has changed in the business world since I started? And they look at you and say, well, first of all, the combustion engine came in. Uh, they, and I say, well, social media, Internet, all these sort of things. But I said, the one thing that's never changed, companies need to sell more products or services to survive. And if you don't take that into account and understand that brand awareness and all this sort of stuff is wonderful. But if you can help them sell more products or more services, you will always do deals. And that's what I did. It's that simple. So if you're not just looking at helping uh, racing drivers, not just looking at helping F1 teams. This is something that anybody who's trying to succeed uh, can can learn uh, from your book. Uh, sorry, let's let's say the title again to make sure it's out there. You don't have to be a champion to be a winner. Can it help me achieve my goal of being an international media icon? Because all, all I really want, Brian, and it's a simple one, is to have the adoration of the masses and be surrounded by yes men. Will your book help me with that? <laughs> if, well, that's uh, what you're going to find in Formula One to a certain extent. Um, of course it will. The, bu- the book really is a I start off um, talking about the book and say, look, I'm not a household name. I wasn't a particularly good racing driver, but because I learned how to apply my trade and find out what people really want in the business world and give it to them, then you can achieve your dreams. It's that simple. So anybody who's in selling, motor racing, sport, it's about Mr. Joe Average, which is all I've ever been, going out there and making those things happen and finding the ways to do it. 
you don't have to be Lewis Hamilton, Nico Rosberg, or anybody like that to be successful and be a winner in life. Uh, that's Brian Sims's book there. You don't have to be a champion to be a winner. Are you still a fan of the racing in modern Formula One, Brian? Not as much. Um, I'm, I'm a fan of MotoGP because I think that's where that's really what, where it's all happening these days. Unbelievable. You've got the, the danger element, which um, is, is a little bit lacking. I hate to say it in Formula One. You've got close racing, unpredictable racing very often. Um, I love watching Formula One, but it disappoints me time and time again. And I think there's a lot that can be done to change the sport. Is, is there a cutoff period for you where you felt like it started disappointing you? Uh, difficult to say, really. I, I, I've been going to a lot of historic Formula One events recently. I, I took a group of people to the historic Monaco Formula One Grand Prix. And for the first time, I've never seen this before, when the flat 12 Ferrari, the John Player Special, um, the Gold Leaf Team Lotus car driven by Adrian Newey came oh. out of the tunnel, the noise and the sound, there were grown men with tears in their eyes. And they were saying, wow, I'd forgotten what this was all about. And cars that don't go round on rails and look like aerodynamic freaks, which I'm afraid is what we've got down to today. Too much technology, not enough sport run by the marketing people. It's an entertainment business as well as technology. Okay, so you want more sports entertainment, more of the marketing people telling the rule makers what it is they need to sell their product. Am I on the right path? I, th I think the balance is wrong. I'm not saying it's one or the other. It's the balance. I think IndyCar racing now, and, and, and sadly, I think they've made a huge mistake in putting it totally onto Sky so that we can't watch IndyCar racing anymore. I really do, because it was getting really exciting, particularly with Alonso going across. But they get that balance right. It's high-tech racing. It's unbelievably quick. It's very well promoted. The commentating is superb. Formula One, in my opinion, has become takes itself far too seriously. Takes itself too seriously. So, I mean, isn't there a danger, though, that, that it can become gimmicky, that we can lose some sporting element? How do we find the balance between that? Let, let's put you in charge. Can we put you in charge of F1 to, today and say, all right, well, actually, you're in charge, Brian, of the 2021 regulations. It's got to be part evolution. It can't just be complete revolution. Do you have, what would you do? What would you do? I would, first of all, get rid of uh, about 40% of the aerodynamics on the car because it is so over technical. Techni I won't use that word again. It's so over downforce these days. In IndyCar racing, it was interesting. They cut 40% of the downforce in one season. Did they? Suddenly, it took a little while to get used to it and get balanced. But it's made a huge difference as overtaking cars can actually run close up behind each other. I think we might see that with the um, uh, task force that Pat Simmons and, and, and um, Ross Braun are doing because they're, they're not stupid people. They're very, very clever. But I do think the balance between clever marketing and the technology has got to be swinging a little bit more towards what the public want to see. I think if they took 40% of the downforce out overnight for the next Grand Prix and we, we all turned up in Belgium with 40% less downforce, I think you'd really find out some of those drivers. Some of those drivers would have nowhere to hide. Well, you've got a ridiculous scenario now where a, a young driver at nine o'clock in the morning can sit in a Formula One car for the first time 
And by lunchtime, he's up to about a second slower than world champions. And that's wrong. It should be that young drivers find Formula One tough, really hard. It's physical. There's power steering now in the cars. The cars are set up to within a, a fraction of a millimeter of perfect setups all the time. I remember sitting, uh, I got to know Keki Rosberg very well. I spent a week with Keki and Jacques Lafitte at the Goodyear tyre test with Williams Formula One. And talking to these guys, life then of a racing driver was so different. The first thing they had to learn was how to set up a car and how to drive a car to its faults and live with those faults. Today, it's, those cars are set up so easily that most professional drivers will get in and go well. And, and there's something wrong with that. This is the world champions, for goodness sake, not a, a, any old motor race. We should have the best out there that there are. And I don't think we have at the moment. It would be good if we could get more competition kind of at the lower levels as well, because there is a feeling that only people with rich parents or your ability to, to sponsor yourself, you know, through by your own admission, you said you weren't the greatest driver in the world, yet you were able to outclimb your ability using your ability to get finances. So what that means is that actually we're not getting the very best talented drivers through the ranks and through into Formula One. Can I tell you something that I, I write for a magazine, Formula One magazine, and I put a proposal in there which got an amazing reaction. I said what we need to do is to, every year, there are 20 Formula One drivers. The top 10 in each world championship get a guaranteed route to net Formula One next year. The next 10 places on the grid should go through qualifying races. And you could have those in the Middle East a month before the end of the season or towards the end of the season, so you've got good weather. Have 12, 24, whatever it is, Formula 2 type cars, all prepared standard cars. Put in the top six drivers in Formula 2, the top six drivers from another Formula, and the top drivers, uh, the, the last 10 in the Formula 1 World Championship, and they compete to have a Formula 1 license to race next year. Can you imagine what that would do? Because the pressure would then go on the teams to find sponsorship to get the best drivers. There is a sport that does this, and it does it incredibly well. And Formula 1 will turn around and say, yeah, but it's always been like this in Formula 1. Yes, of course it has. Does that mean it's right? What's the sport that does Speedway it? Grand Prix. Uh -huh which is owned by IMG, it's getting 50,000 people going to the Millennium Stadium Cardiff to watch the race. All over the world, that series goes. They have got the 16 top drive racers in the world competing. And the top eight go through to next season. The bottom eight drop out, and they have to re-qualify to get back into the world championship. Could you imagine that in Formula One? I could. I think it would bring a completely new approach to it. And there'd be a lot of rich fathers worrying how we're going to get our son in there because they're not making it. Well, they'd have to make them actually good. And I suppose you would get kind of like a draft system where you would have Formula One teams scrambling to write checks for the, for the best, yep. fastest drivers. Absolutely. Tell me what's wrong with that. I don't know. Uh, email, <laughs> email us at spannersready at gmail.com. Brian, where's the best place for people to go to order your book? I think the starting point would be my website. May I give the address? Go for it. Thank you. It's briansims.co.uk. So that's B-R-I-A-N-S-I-M-S.co.uk. And from there, you can 
see a promo video of the book and order it from there. Brian Sims, uh, author of You Don't Have to Be a Champion to Be a Winner. Thank you very much for joining me in the shed. And are you sure you can't tease anything about what you're, you're about to do in F1? The, the sponsorship is, in fact, in Formula One, but historic Formula One. And it's to do with setting up a, a new organization, which has just been announced, to create career opportunities in the historic Formula One sector to attract people there and to take that a stage further. And it's quite exciting. I have some very big partners on board. Thank you very much, Brian Sims, for joining me. You can follow Brian on Twitter by searching for Brian Sims F1 and search for his book, You Don't Have to Be a Champion to Be a Winner. What a fantastic interview there with Brian Sims, ex-commercial director of Benetton F1. Don't go anywhere yet. We have a little bit more to go. We are, of course, going to do... Comment of the week. I'm going to have to adjust that jingle slightly to Comment of the Week, a segment I always remember. And I can have two and I can play, I can play either that one or my new one, depending on when we do it. Now, chaps, we are very close to the Mist Apex karting event. I'm so excited. We've actually filled up nearly all the seats. We have one single sol- solitary seat left, Chris, and that is mainly because you are taking a hard and firm commentary role this time around. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. I won't be as out of breath when I do my comms <laughs> now, having having run out the go-kart and up to the, the, the balcony to go and do it again. It's, it's not ideal, uh, running straight from a car and then getting on the mic. No, I, I, we, we want to do this properly. Yeah, we'll, we'll just crane you up there and prop you <laughs> up in your special chair where you can do all the commentary because you're a physical enfeeblement. I would love that. So we did uh, a video last time, and I have never produced a live video before in my life. And we got a very talented crew in to come and help us. And we had onboards, we had static cameras, and we had moving cameras as well covering the action. It, It came together beautifully. It looked fantastic. It wasn't the best video we could produce. And I think uh, you and I, Chris, we, were, we learned an awful lot about the production of a video. And we've got a fantastic plan this time as well to create a good, a good story for the event. But it, it is really nice covering it. And it's a lovely showcase for your, your fine commentary as well. Oh, thank you very much. Um, yeah, it's only like my sixth event or something ridiculous like that. They're quite few and far between. But yeah, I, I, a day out karting with, with my mates and, and my listeners, yeah. uh, which is uh, a pretty good day, if you ask me. So the next day is the Singapore Grand Prix, and we're going to be hanging around after the karting event. And uh, if, if previous... Uh, events is anything to go by matt you and i after the event in the hotel will have a spot of dinner a glass of chardonnay and probably be in bed by nine ten o'clock tops uh, but everyone is welcome to come and join us uh in in the in the hotel afterwards in the lobby uh, and have a have a drink with us uh, i'm sure we can accommodate uh, even the 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 longest of drinking stints Uh, and then the next day we're going to go back to Buckmore Park because our friends at Buckmore Park big shout out to Adam uh, who is uh, who has offered us the the same suite that we're going to do our briefings in to watch the Singapore Grand Prix 
the next day. So you're more than welcome to come and come and join us and watch the Grand Prix with us. And then we're going to record a live race review podcast, Matt, which is going to be a weird one, isn't it? Because I, I normally... I'm sat with the timing screen. I've got my son reporting the timing screens for me and I have a laser focus on what's going on. It's going to be interesting talking about a race that we're watching with other people talking and having opinions all around us. Yeah. And normally I've written an entire article and gone back through and looked at highlights and found all the numbers that I want to find to make sure I'm right about things. So it will be an interesting extemporaneous challenge, I say. Yep. I know what all those words mean. But no chat room, okay? It won't be epic if Spanners forgets comment of the week after having played the jingle. I definitely hadn't forgotten. Thanks very much for posting that. It's time for... Comment of the Week. A segment I never forget. Okay, who are the candidates for comment of the week, Matt? Well, uh, we have a duet up for starters. iHammer and Michael Dieselhoff with iHammer going Formula E is more of a retirement series of... F1 and Dieselhoff replying, are you calling F1 a feeder series for Formula E? It, I mean, it kind it kind of is at the moment. And But why not? There's such a spillover of talent that, that can't be accommodated in Formula One. I think Formula E is a great place for those guys to go. But 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 not yet the other way around, because I don't think I don't think Formula E is a good prepping ground for drivers going the other way back to Formula One. No, and uh, we had this discussion, and we actually oddly agreed. Hmm, that's weird. Oh, okay, wait, let's see. I shouldn't have said that out loud. Yeah, right. Let's see if we can argue about the next comment. Ben Williamson joining us on his rare occasion. Let me get this straight. Map understands. Missed Apex podcast. That's Map. Yeah. That a young Frenchman was difficult to manage and had his own opinions. Okay, kind of racist, but let's roll with it. Let's roll with it. All right. And then uh, regarding the uh, Red Bull uh, driver tango, David and Rachel said, bring back Maldonado. Never. No, never do that. Who's who made that comment? That was David and Rachel, which I, I have to give them credit for. It would spice things up if we had Maldonado back on the grid. Is, is that, sorry, I can't let that go. Is that a joint YouTube account? Uh, I I don't know. Okay. It's just what was next to the comment. I think that is not as bad as a joint Facebook account. And someone needs to yet justify to me why a joint Facebook account is ever a good idea. Uh, but uh, is there any more comments? Thank you very much for that comment, David and or Rachel. We have one more from Bill Ben Williamson uh, regarding the Prelly tires. They couldn't take their ball away. It wasn't in the right temperature range. I like it. That's clever and technical. In fact, generally with a comment, if you seem amused, but I don't get it, I just assume it's really clever. And and David and Rachel are, are defending themselves that it's just a joint email account that they're signed into. Okay, sorry, sorry. I didn't, <laughs> didn't mean to give you that stick. I'm sure Mrs. Spanners would uh, make me have a joint Facebook and email account if she realized that was a thing. So please, no one tell her. Okay, who's our winner, Matt? Oh, I think our winner has to be Ben Williamson. Re-Pirelli tires. They couldn't take their ball away. It wasn't in the right temperature range. Comment of the week. Thank you for listening to Missed Apex Podcast. We have plans to speak to Matthew Carter next week. They're not nailed down, but there will definitely be a show released next Sunday. Uh, and then our next live stream, our, f- our next full live stream is likely to be 
after the Belgian Grand Prix at 8pm UK time. You can follow the show at Missed Apex F1. It's glamorous and fantastic host at Spanners Ready on Twitter and all our work at MissedApexPodcast.com. And if you want to support us on Patreon, we would be very, very grateful. Patreon.com forward slash Missed Apex. I, I guess you could follow these these guys, the the little one, the young'un on the end there with the spectacles. Chris Stevens, where can you be found on the internet? On the internet, you can on the find internet. me at Chris on Racing on Twitter. Chris underscore at underscore on Racing dot com. Nah. So to to clarify, Chris dropped the underscore from his Twitter handle due to peer pressure, which is weak. Okay. I had a career change. I couldn't have journo in it anymore. Why didn't you just add another underscore if you were so sure they were good? Oh, underscore and journo, underscore and underscore PR, uh, even for me. Peer, peer pressure. Argument over. Matt Trumpets, you can be found at MattPT55. But I know that the only reason you're still on this podcast is to hock your wife's mucky books. Yes, indeed. The fabulous and talented at A Weaver Writes on Twitter. Go buy her books. She's actually got, she has new ones coming out right now. Uh, she's just, She's actually working on notes. For the last of a three book series. Okay, so these are romantic novels, but they, they have a story. And in fact, she's working on a Formula One version of her genre well, of books. It, the Formula One one, we just need to sell. It's written. It's written. Okay. And I don't know whether, whether this is a, a plus or a minus, but I've heard that a lot of the male characters are inspired by Matt, which basically makes it Missed Apex podcast fan fiction as far as I'm concerned. Uh, tune in, uh, stay subscribed, do subscribe to us on your podcast player of choice. Don't rely on us posting links uh, to this episode on social media. And until next time, be brave, because wounds heal, chicks dig scars, but glory lasts forever. This was Missed Apex. There was a knock at the shed door. Hi, there's a delivery for you. Oh, really? I wasn't expecting a delivery in the shed, but do come through my door. That's the beginning of my very own. That's my version of if Amanda ever wanted to do a, a Missed Apex shed version of her books, Matt. That's, that's how it would start. That was awful. No, what? It was narrated really good. It was super sexy. I There was tension. There was characters. There was mystery. Like, who was at the door? Was it really a delivery person? You know, or was it, was it someone disguised as a delivery person? A stalker? A listener? <gasps> the delivery was great. Just yeah. the content was really bad. Well, I'm not a writer of mucky books. You know, A. Weaver writes his. Did we ever work out who did write fanfic about us? <laughs> no, that was horrible. <laughs> there was, there has been one. It exists. I'd have to trawl through my email. Come this. Let us I want to read it. <laughs> no. No. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact. You can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. 
Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at UH1.com. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health-monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.